Hello, welcome to Sport Unlocked at the end of Qatar's World Cup journey from the bid 12 years ago to the tournament. It's finally been completed. I'm Rob Harris from Sky News. I'm joined by Tarek Panja from the New York Times and Martin Ziegler from the Times. Well, it's finally happened after years chasing his dream, wanting the biggest prize in world football. He finally got his hands on the World Cup in Lucille Stadium on Sunday night after Argentina's victory over France. Salt Bay. <laughs> yes, Rob. Very good. Yeah, Salt Bay, the uh, the infamous, famous celebrity butcher stroke restaurateur, um, has caused a bit of a, a bit of a storm actually by sort of going onto the pitch somehow, wearing FIFA accreditations, pestering Argentina, Lionel Messi for selfies, and actually holding up the World Cup trophy, which is actually in breach of FIFA's own regulations. Um, any idea how he might have got that accreditation to get on the pitch, guys? Well, if you followed his Insta- busy Instagram account over the last couple of years, you will have seen there's a, there's a figure who's particularly close to him, uh, none other than Gianni Infantino, the, the FIFA president. He, um, I think he said he's the number one, just like football is the number one sport, and just like football, gold-leafed, $1,000 a plate steak unites the world or something like that, Zeke's? Words to that effect. But Rob, I mean, there's quite the, you know, he's a bit of a sort of ludicrous figure, sort of, but I mean, there is actually a more serious aspect to this as uh, around sort of cronyism and, um, you know, how somebody like that can get on the pitch, don't you think? Well, I first asked Gianni Fantino about his association with Salt Bay in March 2021 at the IFA press conference, which was our first opportunity for some time to speak to him and it came some weeks after he'd been at Salt Bay's restaurant filming what looked like a promotional video effectively for Salt Bay's Instagram by talking it up and promoting it and since then we've seen him quite often appearing in Salt Bay videos including at this World Cup in Qatar with him late at night I'm told after he went to Salt Bay's restaurant in Doha to celebrate a council member's birthday but there he was appearing in it and I think one of the sort of wider issues on this is even if you think Gianni Fantino has a right to eat wherever he wants to eat, there are questions to be asked about the fact he didn't mix with regular fans. We didn't see him at all with regular fans, but there he was very, very often he's been seen at this place with its stakes that cost hundreds of pounds with gold leaf painted on them. And he was constantly at World Cup matches, he was introduced to the King of Malaysia, wasn't he, by Gianni Fantino in the VVAPA areas. And one of the things often said by FIFA against media not being elected into certain events is because they think media would hassle the guests. Yeah. Here we've got Salt Bay on the pitch hassling players yeah. with yeah, I think, political leaders. Yeah, you're, you're right there, Robbie. It was this introduction to the to the Malaysian king um it's all available at least uh, one one person who's very transparent is Salt Bay really because <laughs> he he seems to post all of his videos and photos of all of these interactions Malaysian king I think there was the um the brother of the crown prince of of um no the brother of the emir um Sheikh Jassim there there is Sheikh Joanne the other brother in his Instagram feed various um football legends Ronaldo etc but um in in the point is about access, isn't it? And privileged access. FIFA did stay quiet for several days until on Thursday saying in a statement, following a review, FIFA has been establishing how individuals gained undue access to the pitch after the closing ceremony at Lucille Stadium on the 18th of December. 
they say the appropriate internal action will be taken. Well, it's going to be interesting to see, does someone get the blame within FIFA? Because what's clear is obviously a close association between Infantino and Salt Bay potentially allowed him to be in the stadium. Infantino was on the pitch handing out the World Cup with the Emir. Who actually allowed Salt Bay onto the pitch? Was there something that someone perhaps thought they were following what the FIFA president might have wanted? And quite frankly, you know, might they get the blame as a result of this when perhaps they were doing what they believed Infantino would have wanted, seeing his friend able to take part and go where he wanted to on the pitch? Well, maybe he's going to be an official sponsor uh, for the... 2026 World Cup because they've paid a pretty price for that association. I mean, if he's got it for handing out a free a couple of free meals, um, he's he's done very he's done very well. And you can only um, say from his point of view, a great marketing job. But it's, it's FIFA, I suppose, who has to answer to to their sponsors and, and and about the free publicity this man's been able to generate. I mean, there's also the the element that perhaps. Um, there is a an investment in his restaurant chain from from the, the Qataris, and that might be be an element of this. But given that no one talks about anything, that questions aren't answered, I guess we we just have to wait and see if we'll find out. And the way he did the sprinkling salt gesture on the World Cup on the pitch is Gianni Fatino just able to invite who he wants to as the FIFA president to a World Cup final? Yeah, you can do that. Absolutely, give them all the hospitality you want, but you don't give them access to the pitch and to pick up the trophy, which FIFA's rules state state should only be handled by a very select few, i.e. World Cup winners and um, heads of state. And guys, it wasn't the only um, kind of controversial stroke, different element to the post-game celebrations um, I think we should talk about what happened to Lionel Messi, actually, in the seconds before he went on to lift the World Cup trophy when the um, Emir of Qatar, the ruler of that country, who spent $200 billion to bring us and the World Cup and everyone to that country for the month, placed this um, golden fringed black cloak known as a bisht uh, on a traditional a cloak, we're told, for special occasions in, in, in the Gulf and the Arab world, over Messi's um, shoulders just before he lifted the trophy to provide that iconic image. What, what did you make of that? Yeah, I mean, it was an interesting debate around this. I mean, some people say this is a sort of uh, a gesture um, in the Arab world or, you know, to show great honour. Um, but other people think it's a sort of way of, the, of Qatar sort of putting its own mark on the celebrations and... Um, actually, it sort of takes away from the the, the image of a, of a player in his shirt, and it wouldn't, have, you know, for example, if you were playing in Rome, would uh, in a World Cup final there, would you, you know, would you expect the Pope to put one of a kind of robe on the winner? No, you wouldn't. So, I think it's, um, I thought, I thought it was a, a, a strange move, and I actually don't think it, it looked particularly good. Could this not be seen as Qatar just wanting to? add a local sort of flavour to this big moment, the celebrations after so many years building up to the tournament and wanting to honour Messi in some way with this bit. It could be, could be, Rob. But the fact they've got him on the Luzail Stadium pitch in Qatar, in a city that essentially was created for the World Cup, having that final, I don't think anyone's going to not remember or the moment where it happened. It was in Qatar and the Emir was on the podium there. 
himself in the in the bisht, of course, as well, handing the trophy over. You would have thought that might have been enough. But but the other there's another element, Martin. You spoke about Salt Bay there and the FIFA regulations about who can enter the field. There's also FIFA regulations on um, attire, um, what people can wear during celebrations on that particular podium. And it, FIFA have used this this rules on on what players can wear very strictly, if you think about it, during the tournament. Of course, the One Love armband, the reason why um, the, the, um, the, the European teams were not wearing those in the end were because apparently, according to FIFA, they contravened the, the uniform dress code. And the same thing, they have rules for, for the podium. So there is that. But I suppose, you know, whoever um, pays, the, pays the money gets to pick the tune. And Qatar definitely <laughs> spent a lot of money on this thing and on FIFA probably over the last month guys so 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 there's that perhaps but it, you know and also there were some people in the arab world who say what's all the fuss about pele wore a sombrero in in mexico city but i don't remember him being up receiving the world cup trophy at that moment i think he was on the shoulders of of, of fans and, and and players on the on the field would it have made a difference i think it would if if the bisht was was placed on messi during celebrations after the trophy lift yeah, I think that would have been fine, actually, and completely different. Of course, this was a World Cup that began with that Gianni Infantino speech for an hour, I feel migrant worker. Feel yeah. gay. And then, really, we didn't hear from him again in a press conference setting right the way until the closing days of the press conference. FIFA went a month without any sort of operational press conference. We reflected on it in the past how, up to 2014, there'd be regular press conferences, the chance to answer questions of this World Cup. Yet they called it the best World Cup ever. I mean, obviously, it was a, you can argue it was sort of the best final ever, but apart from the football, how, how would you look back on this World Cup, guys? Yeah, and that's the important thing. You have to separate the football. Um, and the football was very exciting. Hmm? There are probably three things to separate here. We've got the bid and how Qatar won the tournament, how they built up the country for the tournament and the ongoing issues and suffering of migrant workers who did die during the tournament in instances. Then you've got the operational delivery of the tournament, which is a lot of FIFA staff who are out of the spotlight, away from that political leadership and are actually just working long hours without any sort of profile. You've then got the many, many volunteers who are actually working for nothing to help deliver this tournament. And then you've obviously got the football itself and how the results are on the pitch. So all those aspects to unpick. For me, it, there's a bit of a, a lingering bad taste in this World Cup. Um, not just because of you know the things we talked about with Salt Bay and, and the Bisht, and I just think it, it sort of underlines some of the the worst things that FIFA stands for, which is sort of ignoring issues ar around um, human rights and transparency and um, doing what I think is the sort of the, the best for the game in, in in order to sort of satisfy national pride. Um, money, 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 and it, it just feels like it's divorced from the grassroots of the game. Ziggs, look, for me, this thing shouldn't have been there. We, the football obviously will be the dominant uh, image for most people around the world, because why shouldn't it? They're football fans, it's their favourite competition, and they're going to remember the moment Lionel Messi finally lifted the World Cup after an epic World Cup final and an epic World Cup in many ways. There were some incredible uh, moments of drama in that competition. I wouldn't say there was great football, but there was a lot of great drama. That said, 
look, look what happened. You can't divorce this incredible feat of football from the 12 years that preceded it. Rob mentioned the, it's built on this corrupt bid. Um, and then what do we get? We get 12 years of this very controversial build-up. I don't know. Even now, we're sitting there. The World Cup final's finished. The circus has left town. And we can't have uh, an accurate gauge of how many of the poorest people in the world died building this thing. And that is is a stain on all of us, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and then we have these the issues of um, continuing issues of human rights. And and then after it, we this World Cup finished in this beautiful golden stadium with a city that was built around it in order to house this beautiful golden stadium. There were seven others built for this event and they were all beautiful in their own different way. But what is the point of all of that stuff? And and that that's my, my constant feeling. You're walking around this place and it, it was suspended in reality for a month-long football tournament. Everything was shut down. Perhaps nowhere on the planet could do a tournament like that. And I, I don't think nowhere, nowhere else on the planet should do a tournament like that. It, I don't, you know, we'll be looking back at the legacy of this thing um, for, for years to come. And yeah, there's always going to be these good elements. It's great that people from the Arab world got to host a tournament, got to see a tournament, got to visit a tournament. There were women in Abayas in the final. I've not seen that before. I think that's brilliant. Um, the Morocco getting into the semis. It was all really good in, in terms of that type of thing. But it was built on something that was extremely grotesque. Obviously, it's like oddity for the whole country hosting this World Cup. We've been to other tournaments and life continues the day after the tournament, maybe with a bit of sense of a come down. But Qatar is one of those places that will probably seem incredibly quiet in the days after the World Cup because it is small and infrastructure was massively built up just to be able to host this tournament, to host far more fans than the actual local population. Well, we, we don't even know how many fans actually came. I mean, we've got these numbers, but being in the stadiums, we, we'll never know. Uh, how many fans, Rob, were, were in that stadium? You have, did they give us some numbers, I believe, at Gianni's Presser? But... Well, there's a lot of sort of double counting, I'd say, even when they announced, I think, more than a million people through the fan zones. They were saying more than a million fans. When you ask more in depth, they suddenly acknowledge the fact they were counting people multiple times, potentially going in. So actually, you have to question some of those numbers. And, you know, there are those who, experts who believe Qatar might be inhospitable in 50 plus years time given the changing climate so I think it'll be fascinating then to see how this tournament is viewed all this spending effectively to host a month of football although they will say it's about investing for the future and building up the infrastructure to be able to invest the the gas wealth now yeah but that means are they let's just give them every single tournament in every sport for the next I don't know however long that's the only way this kind of makes sense to me that this is this permanent you know, perpetual host of sporting events. Otherwise, you've got this very, very tiny place with a very tiny domestic population with these follies, these enormous arenas dotted around the place. Don't forget they had a bunch of other stadiums for their domestic um, football league that are mostly empty anyway. Um, and Rob, just a word here for the, 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 weirdly, the backdrop that filled these stadium seats in some ways were... The migrant workers, you know, by accident, these these people got to see games they probably would never have been able to, to go to. But that's not what, thanks to Qatar, it's an accident. The fact that they couldn't get, I guess, regular people to fill fill all the seats. You're bussing in, you know, Indian, Bangladeshi, Ghanaian, uh, Kenyan 
um, Nepalese labourers to, to football stadiums. I guess we'll never see that again either. Well, they were letting them in sometimes when the stadium seemed perhaps quieter after kickoff. One point you're saying about Qatar becoming maybe a host of many sports events in future, it is one of the things often discussed around the Olympics rather than actually spending on all this infrastructure around the world to host an Olympics, why not have a permanent host for it? They've often talked about, would you have a permanent host in Greece or something? So maybe as a sports hub, if these venues are of use, there is some logic to it. Although environmentally there are challenges because there are many months of the year when, unless you air condition the streets, it'd be pretty dangerous. Yeah, I look forward to you, to you recommending that to the IOC, that um, Qatar to be the permanent Olympic host in June and July. Yeah, for the winter or summer games <laughs> um, just you mentioned Gianni Infantino's final press conference um, he dropped a bit of a bombshell there I think didn't he um, and which also has some fairly important sort of uh, impact on the international match calendar for the future yeah he did um, to the surprise of the rest of the football world or those who have a direct interest in it, particularly the European clubs and leagues, I guess, that he announced a new expanded Club World Cup that will have 32 teams in it from 2025. There was the aborted 2014 one. Do you remember that was supposed to be played in China? Somehow we've got eight more teams and it's going to be in 2025. And you can imagine the reactions. Yeah, so we've got a situation now where um, we've revamped the World Cup um, and it was going to be up from 64 to 80 matches with 48 teams. And now it looks like that's going to be revamped without even playing it. Then we've got the Club World Cup, which was going to be 24 teams, and that's already being revamped and expanded without it being played. It's just, I mean, it's, it's just growth for growth's sake or power or money, what? I mean, you get the sense, and perhaps Gianni Fantino might have giving it away a bit in an interview on local television on Monday, the day after the final, when joking, I think he said about a World Cup every six weeks or so. And perhaps there's a sense that FIFA doesn't like being out of the limelight for so long. And often in the past, it was only really in the spotlight every four years. The growth of Women's World Cup means every two years to some degree as well. And actually, maybe the FIFA leadership sees the way they are fated during this World Cup period with world leaders like Macron wanting to come and spend time with them and they are in the spotlight like this that they want actually more and more and bigger events where they're increasingly important rather than domestic and continental competitions yeah well Gianni certainly seemed to like the spotlight he found it hard to um, give up the trophy didn't he in that that last uh, moment uh, the the World Cup final Um, but yeah Macron as well that's another person I, I also don't know what he was doing on the field to be honest, consoling um, Kylian Mbappe. The, the, this, this, um, the, the relationship between top politicians um, and the football hierarchy, um, c- certainly in, in the, the kind of Gianni era, seems to be particularly acute. You know, if he's not with MBS, he, he was there with, um, with Macron. Really, um, no, no kind of idea of the separation of, of sport and politics. And Macron, just like I think the Qataris, has gripped onto sport um, as a way of uh, providing a platform for for him too. So I think that 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 should be noticed. But yeah, in terms of these big these events, just the, it's like they're um, making it up as they go. Zeke's um, the 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 statements from the um, uh, Europe World League Forum, the European leagues, um, 
FIFA Pro as well, just the lack of discussion as to what is happening uh, in a very vital moment. We're talking about this new 10-year um, global football calendar that Arsene Wenger is trying to develop. Um, and these announcements seem to just be made. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, I think it's... I, I You do wonder, this is um, FIFA thinking, well, I know what we'll do. We'll ask for 32 teams and let them say that's what we want and um, that we're going to have 104 matches at the World Cup um, and 39 days instead of 30 or whatever. And then perhaps people won't uh, kick off so much if, if we agree to reduce that slightly. Um, is this a bargaining position that he's taking? Probably. But even uh, even so, it sort of... It, it, it doesn't. It doesn't sit well with the rest of football. And if you think we've seen this all before, well, we went through this in 2018, 2019 with the battle over the agreement on a club World Cup then to be expanded. It was only in 2019 that the ECA seemed to reluctantly go with the plan, having really resisted it. They actually did sign off on the 2014 Club World Cup. COVID and issues with China then delayed it. And here we are again, but it's not just going with the previous agreement, which he could have just implemented. It's now we want 32 teams. Yeah, but one of the reasons we really liked this World Cup from a sporting point of view, um, or I, let me talk about myself, is the absolute scarcity of this thing. You know, if it's every year and we're sort of deluged in four games a day football World Cups, it's just not going to have that same kind of value, surely. It's exhausting just being a, um, a kind of um, viewer or someone trying to document this this event, let alone people participating in this thing, the value is in the scarcity in many ways. And same with quite a lot of big football. Um, and that's, the, you know, that's what the Super League guys, I think, don't seem to get. The idea that fans want to watch Real Madrid playing Manchester United and just keep eating cake every day is is what everyone wants. But the reason we kind of love these moments is that they are so rare, surely. Well, absolutely. It's the rarity that adds value as well. The fact it's a game people look forward to. It's why... Perhaps even some cup finals don't get that singular focus as they used to. I mean, obviously, the Super Bowl is every year, but actually there are fewer NFL games during that regular season. It's, is it, it's just August to February, basically, isn't it? So it's a really shorter period. And that's what you, know, you get that scarcity within the anticipation. Yeah, but are you, are you as excited? If there's, there's, even the Super Bowl fans can't be as excited as, as the, 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 the fans of the winning World Cup teams. Five million people on the streets of Buenos Aires are going absolutely nuts. You just won't get that with anything else. It's just there's nothing that is comparable with the World Cup final um, and and the effects of it, and we're we're seeing that now um, on the, on the streets of Buenos Aires um, and 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 Morocco, for example, where the where the, the Moroccan team arrived in in Rabat, uh, all those thousands of people in the streets there. Croatia too, again um, arriving in Zagreb. You, you do something like that every year. You're just going to lose what makes it so beautiful. Some of the numbers in terms of US viewing figures, more than 25 million people watching the World Cup final. The only bigger US soccer audience was in 2015 for the Women's World Cup final when the US beat Japan. And that took place in a more favourable prime time, time zone because it was in Canada. And this World Cup final on US TV even beating... World, uh, World Series baseball games as well uh, more recently. Obviously, the Super Bowl is still at uh, 112 million in the US, but certainly it is the rarity, as we see with the Olympics, that garners interest. Uh, we see in perhaps athletics, the Diamond League meetings don't get as much focus. The 
athletics world, which are every two years don't get that singular appeal, but the Olympic athletics finals do get the world watching, although nowhere near the same numbers as you get for a football World Cup final. Yeah, actually, when you mentioned the World Athletics Championships, that, that's a good example of something which was every four years and then became every two years and lost a lot of its luster. That's for sure. I, I, I really think that's true. Yeah, le- less is more. Less is more. Uh, something else from the closing days of the World Cup was a story I put to FIFA, something I'd been looking at for some time, and I asked them about on the Friday, which was the disbanding of the Human Rights Board. So... It was one of the signature policies introduced after Gianni Fantino took charge. They introduced this independent body. It had trade unions. It had representative sponsors, as well as experts in the field of human rights. Well, they had their mandate, first of all, until 2019. It was an expanded and extended until 2021. It issued its final report in early 2021 when it said there was still an ongoing need for independent oversight, particularly in the build-up to and around the 2022 World Cup. It never happened. Um, at one point, actually, FIFA effectively actually tried to get someone on the phone to me who was in hospital to discuss the story to perhaps try to dissuade me from actually doing it. Then we reached last week and they suddenly said in a very long-winded statement it hadn't been introduced. There was no new independent oversight. In fact, only on Friday at the council meeting did they introduce potentially a, a subcommittee of the audit committee to look into human rights with no names. You don't know who's going to be on this board. So here we are, the end of the World Cup and the human rights board that did exist from 2017 independent board. There isn't any replacement. And if it sounds familiar again, not long after Gianni Infantino took office, FIFA disbanded its anti-racism task force. Yeah, good tale that, Rob. Yeah, I think it's sort of quite convenient timing that uh, it was sort of um, disbanded for the, for the period in the run-up to this World Cup. Um, and it may, it may, depending on who's going to be bidding for the next World Cup, uh, and if it's Saudi Arabia are going to go for 2030, um, be interesting to see who is on the board, if it lasts, what they will say about it. Um, because... Surely no, nobody can say that human rights is not a big issue in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. One other thing from the FIFA council meeting was an announcement made by Gianni Fantino himself about himself, which was saying his first period as FIFA president didn't count as his first term, which means he can stay in power potentially until 2031. That would give him a stay in office from 2016 to 31. What did you make of that as it was announced? Well, I thought um, exactly. I thought that's exactly what was going to happen. If I'm honest, because um, uh, he clearly really loves being the FIFA president. But again, it's a question of checks and balances. And there's another element to this, Rob, that the statutes. If you read the fine print, it's almost like designed just for him, because if some if something happened to Gianni Infantino now and someone else came in, the clock starts immediately. Unlike he won't get the free three years or four year, three years that Gianni got. And I'm wondering, you know, it reminds me of like, you know, dodgy tenders in countries when they when they know the company they they or the person they want for the job. You know, you have to the, the, the job is open to everyone, but you have to be five foot eight, right handed, brown haired and live at that address. You know, it, it's like the specific statute change in order to keep Jani in 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 place. Um, you're, and, not, and the, you're, not the other thing, eight, you're not five foot eight, are you, Terry? 
Just about, yeah. <laughs> the, <laughs> we need a statute, a little bit more in the statute change. But the other, the other thing is, uh, you mentioned the audit and compliance um, department and how it all seems to funnel into that one. That that department has accumulated all sorts of power um, and all sorts of now human rights, Rob, you just mentioned. And that is run by a former Indian judge now, Mukul Mukdal, who ended up taking that role after um, his predecessor, I think, after Miguel Maduro left, and he got even more power. Now, he's a curious fellow as well. I, I remember him from um, the Russia World Cup in 2018 at the luxury five-star lot hotel. Um, you know, one of those places where we're trying to just sort of hang around, hoping one of the, some of these people talk to us. And it just happened to be um, Mr. McCall Mukdal was there talking to one of the um, hotel receptionists or one of the FIFA um, they're called, what are they called? They're called the, um, the, the, the guest relations managers, just to insist and to double check that he had a suite in this luxury hotel. Um, and I, I was thinking, God, this is the audit and compliance person. Wow. They really are treating him well. Um, anyway, uh, separate to that, he's the guy who will have to see if everything's above board. One other thing on Gianni Fantine, of course, he was on the reform committee that helped to draw up the new term limits. So if we think back to 2015, we've had the wave of arrests in the May at the Borah Blatter then got re-elected. He then subsequently, days later, said he would lay down his mandate at some point in the uh, the future. It'd be an election. Then in the September, at the point that Michel Platini, as UEFA president, was the favourite to be the next FIFA president, at the same time, there were meetings of this reform committee featuring people from all the confederations, including then UEFA General Secretary Gianni Infantino. Then Michel Platini got uh, suspended after the investigation that brought him and Sepp Blatter over payments and bonuses in the November, by which point Gianni Infantino had already then become the candidate preferred by UEFA for the election, the Reform Committee reports. There was the recommendation for three terms of four years, 12 years maximum period for the FIFA president, signed off by Gianni Infantino, who then in February 2016 becomes FIFA president. We now know that 2016 to 19 doesn't count as his first term. It's 2019 onwards are his terms. And of course, he'll be re-elected unopposed as it stands in Kigali in March. Yeah. I mean, the the other, the other thing is, I'd, it's it's a real shame that these um, sports bodies like FIFA and UEFA don't actually have proper elections and the incumbent just seems to, uh, all, all possible opposition disappears and they don't have any anyone standing against them. It's very undemocratic, isn't it? Um but it's obviously what the, the incumbents want. Um, but I think it's a big shame. But Aziz, it's because of the system, isn't it? And the system has remained, despite the FBI arrest in 2015, um, there's people being carted off to jails. The system seems impermeable when it comes to any kind of change. It's still these 211 nations voting for a, a, a FIFA president. It's a very powerful position once you're in as well, because then you are dispensing football's largesse. Um, Gianni Infantino, on the Sunday morning before the opening game of the World Cup, had that meeting, this FIFA summit, um, no press allowed, unfortunately, where he um, told the, the national associations they'll be getting more money. And, and that seems to be it for, for, for most of them. You know, round of applause, a bit more cash in the coffers, and we move on. Um, there isn't much talk about gov- governance or, gov- 
or, or any kind of structural change. Um, more more sinecures, more committee seats, more per diems. It goes on and on, doesn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, a lot of the national associations are to blame, I'm afraid, because I did have a conversation with a FIFA person not too long ago when I said, um, what, um, you know, I asked, and I said, and I said why, why is this sort of constant drive for more money, more power, more more of a you know, share of the game? You know, why do you need more money? And he, goes, and he just said, oh, well, the national associations want it. And, you know, we they, they elect us, so... That's what we have to do, but um, so yeah, they you know it's, it's quite a cosy number being the president of a of a football association. Get if you get the all the the perks that go with it, invitation to the World Cup, generous per diems. You know you want to stay there, and, and in fact you want to get more. And in fact, all it needs is five federations to nominate a candidate, and they can stand in the FIFA election. And no one did, despite Europe spending several years railing against Gianni Fantino, his presidency and policies. Europe still didn't put up a rival candidate. Yeah, it's quite, quite, quite pathetic, isn't it? I think there four, there's about four, four nations. I think four European nations. I think the Netherlands, um, Sweden, Norway, and I think Germany have said they won't um, give their backing to Gianni in Kigali. It doesn't. Really, it's a bit of a just public relations exercise at that point. Yes, they they've shown their their unease at him. Being there, but there isn't, as you say, an an, an, an opposing candidate, and um, he'll sweep to accl- a victory by acclamation, presumably. So, as we draw an end to the discussion on the Qatar World Cup, it's been a more than twelve years of reporting for us. How do you feel? It's now all over, and Qatar has happened. The World Cup has happened. All the years build up, all the reporting on the investigations, all the focus on human rights, with how they would deliver this event. It must feel strange now the fact this is now in the past. Yeah, it does. It's um, it's been a, it's been fascinating, um, and it's been really interesting reporting on it. Uh, it's been frustrating and sort of disheartening as well <laughs> often. But so I'm quite glad it's over. Yeah, for me, I think the the, the realization, if we didn't know it before, is in the end money wins. Um, it got what it wanted, it paid for it. We move on and, and it's a blueprint for other wealthy nations. And that about brings the end to Qatar's World Cup journey. So much controversy we've reported over the years surrounding it. Qatar's always denied wrongdoing in the bid. Ultimately, the money won. And as a closing thought, once the teams and the fans all left this week, it was time for Qatar to announce its budget. And they said revenue would increase 16% this year for the country to $65 billion. They'd be spending... billion. So while a lot of the world deals with financial strife, Qatar is in fact talking about having a budget surplus of around $8 billion. Now you can see why sport's going to Qatar. Well, that about brings an end to this week's episode of Sport Unlocked. Looking back on the Qatar World Cup, myself, Rob Harris, Tarek Panja and Martin Ziegler, thank you very much for listening. Goodbye for now. 